0: Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. We know last week was tumultuous, draining, just too much shit going on last week. So I hope you guys got some rest this weekend. And thank you all for tuning in to this Monday's episode, where we'll be interviewing Philadelphia District Attorney Larry Krasner. Larry's so dope. We're going to talk about progressive prosecutors, his work in Philadelphia, and his take on what's happening around the country with police violence. But before I get to Larry... I have to talk about the latest police shooting in Chicago with the killing of unarmed, at the time he was shot, 13-year-old Adam Toledo. In case you missed it last week, the city of Chicago released footage of a shooting that occurred back on March 29th. Based on what we know from the footage that was just released this past week, it appears that after a foot chase between Chicago police officer Eric Stillman and Adam Toledo and Ruben Robin. Toledo was told to drop his gun. He did, and when he turned around, the officer shot him. Now, this is obviously tragic. What's more tragic is that James Murphy, the prosecutor assigned to this case, told a judge that Adam Toledo had a gun in his hand when he was shot by Officer Stillman. That was obviously not true based on the body cam footage, which this prosecutor had to have seen. And it took five days for Cook County State Attorney Kim Fox to have an explanation for why her prosecutor's description of the event didn't match the footage. And to add further insult to injury, embattled Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot told her city and the entire world that Adam Toledo was holding a gun in his hand when he was murdered by the cops. And like Attorney Murphy, Mayor Lightfoot saw the same footage, but said the same thing, which is probably the same thing the police said. And you see, that's my problem, y'all. Look, I don't know Lori Lightfoot. But what I see is a mayor that's probably in over her head. And what I also see is people amplifying police reports when we know that police sometimes lie. And what we also know, which appears to be a pattern in Chicago, is video footage saying one thing, Chicago's leadership saying something else, and footage that folks sit on for way too long. It's hard to see this in trusted leadership in Chicago, given the scale of challenges before the city. And as we've seen with some of our guests, like Dr. Sean Ray, We've got to move away from looking at these incidents as rotten apples and instead talk about how we get rid of rotten trees because that's our problem, a broken system of policing. And the roots of that rotten tree seem to go beyond policing and reach into some of these DA offices and these mayor's offices as well. Fixing that is our job. And today's conversation with Philly DA Larry Krasner will be about what that work looks like. And that's that on that. Now on to our interview with Larry
1: Krasner.
0: Oh man! Thank you so much. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers podcast. Today we have Larry Krasner with us, an amazing district attorney doing great work. And the timing of this couldn't be more right with everything going on in the world, Mr. Krasner. We start each of our guests by having you walk us through the arc of your career. You started your career as a public defender, which we'll get into, and spent thirty years as a criminal defense attorney, and then you decided to run for DA. Talk to me about your career in the law and how it's shaped your orientation around your current role as DA of Philadelphia.
2: So, um, you know, when I came out of law school, I really wanted to do criminal justice. I interviewed for prosecutor jobs and defender jobs. I wanted to work for the government. And some of it came out of the fact that I had been on a jury in a death penalty case after college and before law school that really kind of formed my path. I was a public defender in state and federal court for five years. But I wanted to go in private practice because in addition to criminal defense, I wanted to do civil rights work. And so I was actually criminal defense and civil rights lawyer for 25 years with my own law firm. And the main kind of civil rights work I did was lawsuits against the Philadelphia police Mm. because they were completely unaccountable in that time period. There was no prosecutor holding them accountable in any way and pretty much got away with what they wanted. And that seemed to me fundamentally unfair. So as I while I was a civil rights lawyer, I was also, in a sense, the only kind of prosecutor there was for police conduct in the form of brutality, in the form of framing people uh, in other forms, like simply abusing your wife as a cop because you could get away with it. Arresting your own wife during divorce proceedings, try to get an advantage on child custody, on support payments, things that were that outrageous were going on. Mm. So I did a lot of that, but I also had a professional hobby, which was representing protesters. And I did that for 25 years, almost always for free. You know, any any organization that has had major impact in the United States in terms of social justice movements, Act Up, Occupy, Black Lives Matter. uh, And I could name a dozen more. These were all clients of, of mine and of our law firm. They were people we loved to represent. And Philly juries knew what to do for the most part. They knew to fight them, not guilty. And um, they should, because that's what the Constitution said.
0: How do you make that jump to go to the DA's office? Was there a, you know, some people say the community was begging me, or some people say I woke up and knew I wanted to be district attorney. I, I, for one, practice criminal law, do a lot of civil rights cases. I ain't never want to be nobody's district attorney. Tell me, tell me how you got to that point.
2: Sure. So um, I got to that point because I did 30 years of being in court, four to five days a week. You know, I had, I had tens of thousands well, at least 10,000 clients. I had a couple thousand trials and I was working hard. I was doing a good job. I got some justice for individuals, but the whole time I'm watching what looks like a slow motion car crash. Mm-hmm. I'm watching the entire system get worse. My, my career basically overlaps most of the rise of mass incarceration in the United States. So I'm chugging away. I'm doing you know justice individually, but at 56 years of age, I was kind of disgusted because I felt like my career had had basically no impact in any way that was sweeping. Mm -hmm. And we had a whole bunch of candidates lining up to run for office one more time, saying the same stuff lock up more people, higher charges, more mandatories, put them away for longer. Uh, It it disgusted me, honestly. And I just felt like, if nothing else, we need to talk about what should happen with criminal justice. Uh, And as I checked around with a lot of my old activist buddies, I realized that we had more of a shot than anybody knew that if we just said what we believed and put it right out there from the very beginning, we had a shot. It turned out we were, we were right. We actually won with more votes than any DA candidate in at least the last 20 years before that. And make no mistake. I was a political unknown. I had never run for office. I was a political outsider. This was not about an extraordinary person. This was really about a grassroots movement that is now you know, sweeping the nation started before I was elected. Mm -hmm. But 10% 10 of the United States has now elected a progressive prosecutor, 10%. That's amazing. 10 years ago, it was basically nobody. And we are seeing more and more progressive prosecutors elected every election cycle in the US.
0: Let's let's unpack. um, And before we get to talk about your new PBS series, I want to unpack what it actually means to be, quote, a progressive prosecutor. First, I've always tried to help my clients, listeners on TV, on CNN. I try to help people understand that the most powerful person in the criminal justice system and in the courtroom is usually your district attorney or your solicitor. So, you know, draw the distinction for us between a more traditionalist uh, district attorney and a more activist district attorney around four practices. Your bail practices, your sentencing practices, charging practices, and diversion practices. What do these terms mean And what does it mean to be a true progressive uh, district attorney? That was a loaded question. I felt like Chris Cuomo, you know, rattling off all of those things. If I need to repeat something, let me know.
2: that's okay. I'll I'll try to beat Don Lemon. Let's see what we can do. There we go.
0: Okay. (laughs) When
2: it comes to bail, we want to get rid of cash bail. Money should have nothing to do with it. The system nationally should be kind of like what they've had in D.C. for 30 years, which is a smaller number of people are held because they present Tremendous danger to society. They're held before trial. A much larger number are released, and money has nothing to do with it. When it comes to sentencing, we are in the most incarcerated country in the world. We need to get people out of jail, not put more people there. You cannot simultaneously be the land of freedom and the most incarcerated country in the world and claim we're not authoritarian. It's a complete disconnect. When it comes to charging, you know, just in Pennsylvania, the number of crimes over the last 30, 40 years has increased fivefold. There is, you know, and the tendencies in charging in Philly have always been to charge as high as you can possibly stretch. Well, that's just fundamentally wrong. We, We charge too many things. I mean, we should not, for example, charge sex work. And we don't. This administration stopped charging people with prostitution. We view them as victims who are in need of public health support. We do not view them as people who should be forever marked so that it becomes even harder for them to get a job if they are able to get away from the life. Same thing with possession of marijuana. That has accomplished absolutely nothing but criminalizing uh, a lot of young people who are doing something that's better for them than drinking alcohol and disproportionately criminalizing black and brown people. So charging needs to be reined in. In terms of diversion, it needs to be expanded. Accountability and conviction and sentencing are not the same thing. Accountability can come in many different forms. And that can mean community service. It can mean, uh, you know, having to do particular things as restitution. But some of the best criminal justice that we actually do avoids a conviction while holding someone accountable and making sure that uh, any harm is remedied. It, It does us no good, you know, to take a huge portion of the population and disable them from participation in the economy, which means they are disabled from being providers for a family. It may mean they don't form a family, means they're not taxpayers. It means they don't have the f- fulfillment of a career. Mm-hmm. We, don't have to be, we don't have to be this stupid. We can be very selective. And we can take people who are harming society in serious ways and hold them accountable differently than people whose activity is really just connected to poverty, opportunity, or a momentary decision that is essentially not that serious.
0: How do you balance that messaging against this, what people would articulate as being a rise in violent crime across the country in major cities?
2: Well, you know, the, the whole messaging issue, I think, is incredibly important because there has been a very dysfunctional kind of messaging in media around crime for a very long time. One that's very, very different, for example, than medicine. We actually talk about science with medicine. When it comes to law and order, that's always been what bleeds leads. It's always been about fear and excitement, and clickbait, and the politics of ambitious chief prosecutors. But you know, people people are concerned, understandably so. We, you know, we just had a terrible shooting in Philly. Last night, it's going on all the time. And right now, I'm in the middle of a bust of 15 people who are being arrested today in connection with multiple shootings and a few killings. We had more homicide victims last year in the United States than any prior year, at least that is my understanding. And it all comes down to a very simple point, which is the pandemic. What happened with the pandemic is that a lot of the things that stopped or protected young people, mostly men, from killing and shooting young people, mostly men, went away. So organized sports and schools went away. Organized sports Mm -hmm. out of schools went away. Recreation centers, swimming pools, job programs, normal jobs available in a low dollar economy went away when people making $40,000 and less got absolutely smashed. Houses of worship went away. After school programs, arts programs went away. Things as simple as restaurants you can go to, activities you can do in, in parks, a lot of this stuff in any meaningful way disappeared. And what we are seeing in city after city is that it's exactly the same thing. Crime is down a bit. Even violent crime is a category which includes these shootings, down a bit all over the country, but we have this terrible spike in shootings, fatal and non-fatal shootings. So what does it mean? Well, this is what it means. We look at that science. What we see is the average increase in the United States and big cities was 40 percent. But the average increase throughout the United States was 18 Mm percent. They're having this problem in cornfields. Right. This Mm -hmm. is happening. This is going on everywhere. We do not have progressive prosecutors everywhere. We have them in only 10 percent of the jurisdiction. So if you look at the 34 cities where this data is available, that are large cities, what you actually find is that there are Republican DAs, And mayors in these cities, conservative ones, traditional ones, progressive ones, democratic ones, they're all having the same problem. There's absolutely no pattern having to do with the criminal justice approach of those chief prosecutors. This is a much, much more fundamental issue of what happens when you strip away prevention that has been very, very meaningful. And what it really means from the prevention perspective is coming out of this. We don't want to just restore it. We need to invest much more heavily. In it than we did before because it was far more protective than we ever realized this the, this tragedy of the pandemic and an epidemic of shootings is confirmation that we should be and we should always have been investing more heavily in prevention yep.
0: you know when I, one of the things that i say which i've said more than a few times which people still don't necessarily get is that this pandemic has ripped the band-aid off the systemic equities we have. In this country, and we're starting to see that now through the statistics that, as you stated, bear that out. Let's talk about one of the reasons you're here today. This PBS series called Philly DA that should begin airing this week on most PBS stations. Why did you decide to let a camera crew into your office, and what was your objective in doing a sh- a show about your office? Now, for those who can't see you, we'll have some video clips up. He does have really good hair, second probably to Jim shooto but Larry, you got you got good hair over there. So how did you let a camera? What made you say, OK, we'll let a camera come in here and see how the, the sausage, the proverbial sausage is made.
2: Well, thank you for the hair coming. I won't turn around so you can see the back of my head. Um, <laughs> uh, this is what happened. We have these these scrappy local filmmakers. These are professional filmmakers. Uh, one of them had won awards for cinematography, but they've been at it for a while. They made their living doing commercials, but also doing documentaries who started hanging, hanging around the campaign a little bit. You know, we were happy to see that anybody wants to hang around a campaign. That's a long shot campaign. We can use all the help we get after we're in office to everyone's surprise. They approach me and they say, well, what if we were to watch what happens in the first year? Let's see how it works or it doesn't work. And I have to tell you at that point, you know, we took, I took a tremendous risk running paid off. Here's some guys asking me to have zero editorial control on something nah. zero, zero financial benefit. Yeah, it's going to show when we do well and we do poorly. And my reaction was, hell yeah. I mean, we should have transparency. We should have truth. People should know that when I got elected, it was a very ordinary person not experienced in, in politics who got elected. They should know that ordinary people can get elected. They can get inside a government and they can take it back and they can make it work for them yeah, we you know, we might fail in some things. We certainly will fail in a few things. We might succeed in some things. Let it happen. Let them see it. Put it up there. Demystify it. And then people will try it elsewhere.
0: That's dope. You know, I had a camera crew following me in my 2014 race for Lieutenant Governor. It was amazing. We had a little bit different outcome than you. Uh, the documentary won an Emmy and I lost an election. So, <laughs> you know, th- things happen differently in different places. I'm glad we've progressed to having you there. What do you want What do you want viewers to get specifically out of this show Philadelphia or Philly DA? What do you want them to take from it? And then even a more question, because you slightly answered that. But a a better question is, what do you want policymakers to take from watching Philly DA?
2: So more than anything, I guess the same answer. I think they need to know that change is possible. You know, we, we believe we can't run against the mainstream party. Yes, we can. We're not going to win every time, but we can run against them and we can win a lot. We believe we can't change our government. Yes, we can. We have to demystify all this and show that, you know, ordinary people can do something like this and they can achieve it. It is really not an eight part series about me. Thank goodness. It really is an eight part series about a whole group of people who came into office to change things. Uh, The resistance within, the resistance without, the support within and without, and then the lives of people who are in the system who are on probation and parole and how they're navigating it it's really kind of a rich uh tapestry i would say for, that shows many different perspectives on this and it's up to the viewer you know some of the viewers are going to look at this and they're going to say you guys are crazy we need more people locked up that's probably how they felt before they started watching right. it but they may, it's a mirror in that sense people who are really dug in are going to stay dug in even when they watch it but i think it honestly gives everybody's perspective and these filmmakers
0: You know, I, I would be remiss if I had you here and, and not kind of talk about the news of the day. Tell me, have you been watching the Chauvin trial at all? I know you're busy in your day in and day out. I don't know if you know the prosecutors in Hennepin County, but have you been watching the Chauvin trial? What are your thoughts on it? And and, and tell me, you know, from your perspective and where you sit in your platform, what can people expect? I mean, uh, what, what's your analysis from from your experience?
2: So strangely enough, I actually know Hennepin County rather well. I worked for the public defender's office there one summer when I was in law school. And I have a lot of family on my wife's side who are from the Twin Cities. So I've spent some time there. What am I seeing? You know, I am seeing excerpts. I find them interesting. More than anything, I am hanging on to this. The video. The video is um, amazing. Hmm. It's, it is hard to imagine that video doesn't do it. I think it does. I have to think it does. But, um, you know, but it's symptomatic of how many George Floyds have there been prior to video when there was no video? How many George Floyds have not had anyone think twice when somebody said, oh, he died of a heart attack, He died of a drug overdose. How often has this happened? So I'm I'm actually optimistic that we are going to see something that looks like a form of justice. I'm optimistic we're not going to see a complete acquittal here that we are going to see some kind of a, a conviction. Um it's just so awful to think we might not.
0: Yeah, I, I can't I can't wrap my head around. I mean I I I am someone who believes that the prosecution getting the third-degree murder charge was probably the biggest blessing that they've had in this amazing prosecution of a case. Uh, because jurors are—people pick on me, by the way, that I say that word when I'm on Wolf. That's my Southern accent. But jurors, I don't know how else to say it, are, are wild cards. And— um you know, what What are you doing? Uh, and are you doing anything special in uh, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia in particular to get more people to play a role in the process, to get more people to come out and do jury duty, particularly those of color, helping them understand the role and import of not just your role, but the role of the jury as well?
2: Well, you know, in Philadelphia, we are blessed with pretty diverse juries. Uh, the demographics of the city are actually 37 percent white. And 63% people of color, predominantly black people.
0: I had so, no idea it was that black in Philadelphia, but it makes sense now. I get it now.
2: It is. And, uh, you know, the super voters in Philly are often 60 year old black women. Mm-hmm. So, so simply because of the voter registration, the voter activity, we have a very high rate uh, of having participation uh, on the juries of people of color, which is a good thing. It's actually a it, it's a famous venue. I, I don't know if you know this, but. Civil attorneys who are doing mass torts or doing serious litigation try like crazy to come to Philly. They try to find some excuse for why the case has to be done here, because it's it's a working class orientation. And I have to tell you, in criminal justice, I've always thought they were very three dimensional, having picked a whole lot of juries myself, because a lot of them have a police officer and a family, but they also have someone who's been a victim of a terrible crime. And, and they may very well have you know a cousin who's doing a life sentence. That's kind of what the Philadelphia experience is. This is the poorest of the 10 largest cities. And so um, we have a real criminal justice system addressing real issues all the time. Uh, certainly we've done a lot to try to increase voter registration. Certainly we have done a lot within the office to make sure our attorneys are not being discriminatory when they pick juries. And there's a very, very long standing history and culture of DAs in Philly deliberately trying to exclude, exclude black and brown jurors from mm. juries. So we have tried to break the back of that culture as much as we can. Um, But, you know, it's an interesting city in many ways. You actually have right now in Philadelphia, you have more women judges than men. You have more uh, black judges than white at the moment. Uh, City that is seven out of eight votes are democratic. So, you know, some of the stuff we got right. But needless to say, it also turns out that just as you can't always predict what a juror is going to do, just as as picking people based on race is usually a, a pretty... Dumb notion. of <laughs> That's true on a jury. That's also true on the bench. And, and you know, keep, I, I, keep plugging ahead, looking for good people. That's it.
0: I agree with that. In the right case, uh, Dante Wright, 10 miles away from uh, Hennepin County, Officer Potter was charged with second degree manslaughter. Not necessarily, you know, going into that case too much. I'm sure we don't. We, we think we know the facts. We've seen the video, but we don't know all of them. Talk about the charging decision, and how would you get to a charging decision that's not a murder charge? I actually think manslaughter is probably the appropriate charge, but how do you come to those decisions? What happens? What goes into the process when you have a video like this? Because, you know, right now, I, I don't think people are educated on the process that you go through to make decisions. They see the video, they they think it's murder, and they don't get murder, so there's disappointment. Talk about that process and what it looks like.
2: You know, of course, the complication here is everybody's been educated on, you know, fictional television, right there in Pennsylvania. There are five levels of homicide, but only three of them are murder. The other two are, you know, manslaughter. They are essentially accidental or quasi accidental shootings. It's a mistake that is so extreme. It rises to the level of a crime. And that's just not common knowledge. What do we do? We try to look very, very carefully at all the evidence. If we are lucky, we have video. If we're lucky, we have body-worn camera, and it can tell us a lot, and we try to make those decisions. Obviously, in this case, you have a police officer um, who is stating before she pulls the trigger that this is a taser, right? So
0: taser, much. taser, taser. Yeah.
2: Taser, <laughs> taser, taser, taser. There is evidence that at least indicates she may believe that she is about to activate a taser when she is not. There's also a damn good argument. She shouldn't have done any of that. And it was completely unnecessary to tase as well. So you have to balance all that. But let me say this, you know, because I criticize prosecutors a lot. I think it's good that they brought charges so quickly at this time. There will be time to sift through all the evidence. There will be time to give every witness the opportunity to come forward and provide full information. There will be more forensics that need to be done, but there was a need to move very quickly. This is a situation. you know, one of the things that happened uh, around George Floyd, in my opinion, is that originally the prosecutor in in Hennepin County did not move quickly enough. Mm -hmm. And so the public outrage built and built and built uh, with consequences that were not perfect. I think if they had moved more quickly earlier, in the Floyd case, there would have been less destruction. There would have been less violence. There would have been a better sense that our elected officials are actually trying to get it right. So I applaud them for moving quickly on this. Uh, You know, I'm not in the middle of the case. I don't have a file to say for sure it's the right charge. But I will say on the limited information we have, it seems like it probably is.
0: Zooming out a bit, talk about the difficulty of charging and prosecuting cops uh, for shootings and other instances. And I want the nuts and bolts prosecutor's perspective on the difficulty of prosecuting officers from the department that you work with every day. uh, Building your own cases and the difficulty of getting jurors, particularly white ones more so, to be impartial when there's an inclination to give officers the benefit of the doubt.
2: So one of the real structural problems we have is laws in a lot of these states, including Pennsylvania, favor police In ways that are flatly unfair, they give them defenses that I don't think they rightly should have uh, when they do exercise force. It's I mean, we have a case right now where we are prosecuting a police officer who was in uniform and on duty when he shot to death a civilian. That civilian was running away. That civilian had no weapon on him. And his hands were empty at the time of the shooting. Right. The law has more excuses built in for that. Then it should. So we actually have done something very unusual, which is we have gone to a court of appeals to try to change the law and the jury instruction instructions around it before the trial, because we Mm -hmm. believe that, that defense is unconstitutional and it should not be permitted. That's just one part of the problem. The other problem, of course, is there's a huge political problem, which is that most chief prosecutors are ambitious. They want to run for something else. It's become a standard checkbox on the resume of a U.S. senator to have been a prosecutor first. And so what a lot of them uh, do is they make political decisions and those decisions historically have been to do whatever the police union wants. Why? Well, partly because of a culture that police are better than the rest of us, which is something that police unions have fed. But also, for example, in a a state like California or a state like Pennsylvania, you have these big city DAs who are going to have to run in rural sections of the state. And by pandering to the local police union, that police union will stick up for the city slicker DA candidate who wants to be governor, who wants to be US senator mm-hmm. all across the state. So, you know, by sucking up to the local police union, by holding no one accountable, it may advantage you in your efforts to proceed with your career. Philly's a place where we have had two of our DAs rise to very important positions. Ed Rendell was, uh, as a very young man in his early 30s, he was I I didn't a D- know that. He was a DA here and then he became the mayor and then he became the governor and then he became best friends of Bill Clinton and a fixture in the DNC. But we also had Arlen Specter. You know, Arlen Specter started out as Philly DA and he then became the U.S. Senator, who more or less was a gatekeeper for access to the United States Supreme Court at a very important time. Make no mistake, both of them had good relationships with the Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police. Right. Right. I have no interest in that. I mean, the times have changed. Number one. Number two, I don't want to run for anything else than D.A. I have no interest in that. So we're willing to take our lumps. And the bottom line is that's what every prosecutor should do. You should hold police equally accountable. Understanding all the circumstances of their job doesn't mean they just get to kill people who are unarmed.
0: Before I let you go, um, you'll have a new max out donor in me. I'm encouraging all of my my listeners to go as well. Talk about your reelect. Why are you getting so much pushback on your reelect? And what's the plan for your second term?
2: Well, I appreciate the max out offer. The max is $250,000. I just want to let you I'm know. I'm not
0: maxing out. Um, I still owe student loans, but okay. I will do 2,500. It's, not, I will it's do, not really.
2: It's not really. Oh, I,
0: I, would, I would do 1% of that.
2: <laughs> I just wanted to see how far I could take. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I got so excited about the donation. I forgot the rest of the question. What was the just talk
0: about why? why, why, What's the pushback on your reelect and what's your plan for your second term?
2: So the pushback on the reelect is that a a prosecutor of 35 years experience whom I fired on the fifth day I was in office, someone I had known for five years and whose tactics I knew is running against me. And his endorsements are coming from the Fraternal Order of Police, which is our police union, a union that twice endorsed Donald Trump. A union that is basically and always has been uh, led by white Republican men with no exception. They have endorsed him and there is an outside pack bringing a lot of money called the, quote, protect our police PAC, unquote. Two thirds of that money came from Tim Mellon, who is a racist and a union buster from the Mellon banking family. Half a million dollars is what he threw into the pot. This is the same okay. guy who gave 20 million dollars to Donald Trump. So big surprise, what we're seeing here is, you know, friends and Confederates of Donald Trump, people who have a cozy relationship with the Proud Boys, which the Fraternal Order of Police leadership does, you know, people who defend an officer having a visible Nazi tattoo while he's Mm -hmm. in uniform. Those people are all lining up with a traditional prosecutor, someone whose whose ethics, frankly, I thought were so low that I, I fired him. I mean, it gets even more It gets even wilder not to go on and on. But, you know, the person I fired is the one who re-prosecuted Anthony Wright. Anthony Wright sat in jail for 25 years for a crime he didn't commit. DNA proved he was innocent. And my opponent took him back for a second trial. Amazing. Amazing. But true. Acquitted in an hour. Ten million dollar settlement. Thank you, my opponent, for so much tax money going that way. Why didn't you just not retry him like any Normal person would so that's what we're up against. We're we're pretty clearly up against the past, and um, we think Philly's going to choose the future. I agree with
0: that wholeheartedly. Talk to people. How can they watch Philly DA, and how can they help out your campaign?
2: So April the twentieth, PBS's Independent Lens series is going to start showing it for free on your television set weekly. I think they do two episodes the first night, and then one thereafter. But if, you can also stream it on PBS app or on uh, PBS passport, whatever that stuff is. I don't really know, but I understand that's how you can get it. Understand? Yeah. I made I made no money off this. I had no editorial control. We're going to look goofy uh, and wrong in some of it. We're going to look right in some of it, but that's as it should be. The truth. The truth has some, some uh, jagged edges and that's what it's, it's gonna
0: still. Be. And it still has some value, at least in the Philadelphia district attorney's office. So thank you, my brother, Larry Krasner. I don't want to keep you too long. I know you have, uh, some, uh, Progressive justice to go hand out today. Thank you, my brother, for joining the Bukari Sellers
2: podcast. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Bakari.
0: Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bukari Sellers podcast. Before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and his lead prosecutor in the Derek Chauvin case, Eric Nelson. They've put forth a spectacular case on behalf of the state. And as the jury gets its instructions today, I can say without a doubt that they've done the best they could do as we hope for the best. It shouldn't be lost on anyone that the leadership here who could deliver real justice is a black attorney general and black prosecutor. There was a lot of static during the presidential primary about Kamala Harris and her record as a prosecutor. And a point she made often that didn't always land with folks, as it should have, was that prosecutors are the most powerful people in the criminal justice system. Today's episode with D.A. Krasner drove that point home further. And while prosecutors in the system they're charged with leading is deeply flawed, having conscientious prosecutors who understand their role is key and having black conscientious ones is even better, as we've seen in Minneapolis. We're praying for a guilty verdict. And even if we don't get one, we know that there were two black men who did the best they could do to deliver for a deeply flawed system that took the life of George Floyd. And that's that on that. We'll see you all on Thursday. Hopefully we'll have a verdict before then and we'll chop it up and talk about that. Have a great day. Have a great week.